Rahim. Assalamu alaikum. The lecture you're about to hear was given on February 16, 1991 by Bilal Phillips in the mosque at the Saudi Arabian Airlines compound, popularly known as Saudi City, in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. The lecture was titled, Understanding Surah Al-Fatiha. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين الرحمن الرحيم مالك يوم الدين إياك نعبد وإياك نستعين اهدنا الصراط المستقيم صراط الذين أنعمت عليهم غير المغضوب عليهم ولا الضالين I seek refuge with Allah from the accursed Satan Al-Fatiha In the name of Allah, most gracious, most merciful all praise is due to Allah, the cherisher and sustainer of the world. Most gracious, most merciful, master of the day of judgment. Thee do we worship and thine aid we seek. Show us the straight way, the way of those on whom thou hast bestowed thy grace. Those whose portion is not wrath and who go not astray. In Al-Fatiha itself, there is guidance for us, practical guidance, because what, when Allah provides us with guidance, it is not something which is theoretical, that we may reflect on theoretically, but something which may be applied in our lives in such a way that it improves the quality of our worship and our submission to Allah subhanahu In the last two verses of Surah Al-Fatiha, we ask Allah according to how He has taught us that He show us the right path. And in defining the right path, we are told to say the path of those on whom is your favor. Surat al-Nadina and Hamta alayhim. And at the same time, we're also to, told to define another aspect of this path in that it is the path which is not the one followed by those on whom is not your blessings, those who are astray and those on whom is divine anger. We say, غَيْرِ الْمَغْدُوبِ عَلَيْهِمْ now, to understand who it is that Allah is referring to, the maghdubi alayhim and the dalleen, maghdubi alayhim being those on whom is Allah's anger and dalleen being those who have gone astray, we have to turn to the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad for clarity. Because if we were to try to approach these verses just from our minds alone, 
we could come up with no end of interpretations. However, when we strive to understand the correct meanings of the Qur'an, we have to go first and foremost to the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad to see what it is he has explained for us of the meanings of the Qur'an. Because the Qur'an was revealed to him, and as Allah said in the Qur'an itself, وَأَنزَلْنَا إِلَيْكَ الذِّكْرَ لِتُبَيِّنَ لِلنَّاسِ مَنْ نُزِلَ إِلَيْهِمْ That we have revealed to you the remem- remembrance or the reminder, which is the Qur'an, in order that you may explain to the people what was revealed for their benefit. So, Prophet Muhammad on a particular occasion, informed his companions that the Maghdubi alayhim were the Jews and the Dalin were the Christians. Why the Maghdubi alayhim, those on whom is Allah's anger, are the Jews and the Dalin are the Christians? The scholars of tafsir or interpretation of the Quran have pointed out that the Jews are those who have knowledge of the book. The revelation which they have, known as the Torah, Torah, is virtually correct. It has some distortions. They have made some distortions in it. But for the most part, it is correct. The information in it is correct. And this is confirmed by the Quran itself. So they have a large portion of the truth, but they have chosen not to follow it. As such, Allah is angry with them because they know the truth and they have chosen not to follow it. Similarly, or on the other hand, the Christians, what they have of the Injil is mostly incorrect. What they have, which they call the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and the writings of Paul, etc. These writings contain a mass of confusion and misguidance. There is a small portion amongst it, amongst these Gospels, which in fact are true. So they don't have the truth. And they are astray, naturally. They are following falsehood. Now, Allah has made particular reference to these two groups for a reason. It is not merely for us to know that those whom Allah is angry with are the Jews and those who are astray are the Christians. No. Because the Quran, as Allah states himself, is guidance for the believers. Those who fear Allah, there is guidance in it. There is some knowledge in it which Muslims are required to apply in their daily lives. When Allah warns us about a people, He is not warning us merely to give us pieces of information of the past, of what happened to these people and what they did, etc. He is warning us that we do not become like them. This is the purpose. If we accept the Quranic stories which are filled with 
information concerning the peoples of the past and how they went astray. If we accept it in the way that Allah intended, then we would be able to benefit from it and be guided by it. This is the intent behind Allah pointing us, pointing us, uh, pointing out to us these two groups. Those who know and don't act on what they know, and those who just don't know and are astray. Now, when we look in terms of Islam today on a world scale, the situation of Muslims, and the present fitna that we are in concerning Iraq, American troops, etc. All of this is a reflection of the state of Muslims on an international scale. There are examples of this same situation in our day-to-day -day personal lives. When we look at the majority of Muslims, we find that they know what the pillars of Islam are. If you take a child and you ask him, a Muslim child, anywhere in the Muslim world, what are the pillars of Islam? He will tell you the pillars are the shahadatain, salah, zakah, fasting, song, hajj. Well, that's beautiful. But when we look into the lives of the majority of the Muslims in the world, we find that they're not practicing these pillars. They know it. They have knowledge of what the pillars of Islam are, but the reality is that they are not practicing. So, they now enter into the realm of the Maghdubi alayhim. And when we wonder, you know, why are Muslims in this situation? Why are these things happening to Muslims and so on so? Why? Because they are among the Maghdubi alayhim. They have knowledge, basic knowledge, and they are not acting on this knowledge. In Islam, a distinction is made between knowledge and faith. See, what has happened is that the majority of Muslims have been or have become deluded into thinking that merely having knowledge of Islam is faith in Islam. It means that they are guaranteed paradise. So they feel like the Jews were deluded before, believing that they were the chosen people of God. The children of God. The fact that they are born a Jew, it means that your place in paradise has been set. Similarly, we find the masses of Muslims believing in the same way. That the fact that you are born in a Muslim family, this means that you are going to paradise. This is delusion. And it is the natural product of being unable to distinguish between knowledge and faith. We may have knowledge of a thing, but faith is there when we act on that knowledge. Action represents the manifestation of faith.
That is living faith, what we call a living faith. Not something which is just mere words. Because I'm sure none of us would question that Satan knows that Allah is the one God. None of us would question that. Satan knows well, knew well, yet he is the most cursed of creation. Because in spite of that knowledge which he had, when he was commanded to bow to Adam, to act on that knowledge, he refused, out of pride, etc. He refused. And as such, he is cursed forever. So the knowledge didn't benefit him because he didn't act on it. So for Muslims, to be able to change their conditions, they have to act on the basic knowledge which they have. It has to again become a living faith, something which is a part of their 24 hour a day life. Now, there is another aspect of knowledge which most Muslims are ignorant of, and that is Tawheed. As I said, we were looking at the two groups. One group which represented those who had knowledge and we're not acting on the knowledge. These were the maqdubi alayhim. Then there is this other group, those who don't have knowledge. And in the Muslim world, when we look into the area of Tawheed, we find in fact that there is very little knowledge of it. People if you ask them what is Tawheed, they will say it means that Allah is one. Most people, they will say Allah is one. However, the Christians say that Allah is one also. And the Jews say that Allah is one also. Even the Hindus, who most people think, well, you know, these people believe in a multitude of gods. They have so many different idols, etc. that they worship, there are no way you could even give them the idea that God is one. No. If you ask the people among the Hindus who know the religion, they will tell you, no, we believe in one God, Brahma. But we believe that he became climate or he became, you know, in a human or creational form at different points in history, in different places, and in different forms. But we believe in one God. So obviously, Tawheed could not possibly be the belief, merely the belief in one God. Because Hindus, Christians, and Jews also share this belief. We also have a group of people who will say also that Tawheed means that everything is God. It's just one existence. 
That is, Allah. This is another expression, carried by a group of people. However, neither of these two expressions correctly define the meaning of Tawheed from a correct Islamic perspective. As such, much of the Muslim world is involved in bid'ah, that is innovation in the religion, which the Prophet ﷺ warned us about, saying very clearly that, you know, kullu bid'atin dalala, every innovation in religion is misguidance, and all of these forms of misguidance lead to the hellfire. Prophet has warned us in no uncertainty. Whoever brings something new in this affair of ours in, in Islam, it is not accepted. Allah is not accepted. It is rejected. This is the reality. However, the mass of Muslims are involved in innovation in the religion. Doing things which the Prophet Muhammad did not command them to do. And we can only worship Allah by way of the things which the Prophet Muhammad commanded us to do. That's why the Prophet was sent to define for us what is the worship of Allah. This is the purpose of the Prophet among the purposes. To make clear to mankind how they should worship Allah. And this is why Prophet said very clearly, مَا تَرَكْتُ شَيْئًا يُقَرِّبُكُمْ إِلَى اللَّهِ إِلَّا وَأَمَّرْتُكُمْ بِهِ I didn't leave anything which would bring you closer to Allah except that I commanded you to do it. This is the bottom line. If there is anything that we believe will bring us closer to Allah that is pleasing to Allah because if it's pleasing to Allah it brings us closer to Allah anything that we believe is pleasing to Allah or will bring us closer to Allah if the Prophet Muhammad did not command us to do it then it is bid'ah it is innovation it is not acceptable to Allah this is the bottom line this is how we define what is acceptable from what is not acceptable. The Prophet Muhammad he told us, he defined for us all of the ways by which we may become closer to Allah. All of the ways by which we may please Allah. And if somebody were to ask you, just briefly, what then is Tawheed? We could sum it up as the belief that Allah is unique and that this belief is reflected in all of our actions, in all of the things in which we do, that we do, believing that they are pleasing to Allah and that they bring us closer to Allah. That Allah is unique. And I didn't just say one. I said unique. Why? Because if we just use the term one, and I say, for example, 
There is one tape recorder in this masjid. This doesn't exclude the possibility of there being another tape recorder in another masjid. So when we say that Allah is one, we don't mean it in this way. We mean one in the sense of being unique, totally. There is nothing like Him. وَلَمْ يَكُنْ لَهُ كُفُوًا أَحَدٍ There is nothing like Allah. Allah does not share His characteristics in their perfection with anyone. Allah, the Creator, is completely distinct and different from His creation. This is the fundamental uh, idea behind the principle of Tawheed. And this principle, by understanding this, we then can clearly understand why those who say everything is Allah are misguided. This is pantheism. When everything becomes Allah, there is no distinction between creator and creation anymore. And this is why you have people saying, you know, you're Allah, I'm Allah, everybody's Allah. We're all a part of Allah. This is misguided. Similarly, you have a body amongst Muslims who will say, for example, that the human soul is divine. They hold that Allah placed in man a portion of his spirit, meaning Allah has a spirit and a portion of his spirit was put into man, into Adam and each descendant of Adam now carries a portion of the divine spirit. And that the purpose of man's existence is for him to reunite that divine spirit with the, divi with the total divine who is Allah. This idea again is in contradiction to the fundamental concept of Tawheed. <laughs> Allah does not have a spirit, nor is Allah a spirit. He created spirit. It is a part of His creation. None of us contains inside of ourselves any portion of Allah, no. We are His creation. What this means to us, practically, is that we are here to worship Allah. We are not here to become Allah. And you might think that, you know, where, where is He getting these ideas from? No. There are a number of people who hold this idea, who call themselves Muslims. But they mistakenly hold this idea and promote it. And this idea is not a new idea. It is not something which you only find amongst Muslims. You will find it amongst Christians, amongst Jews, amongst Hindus and amongst others. It, is, it commonly comes under the heading which is known as mysticism. Mysticism. And it is alien, actually, to Islam. Now, 
realizing that knowledge without practice is a curse, that we have to act on the knowledge that we have, and two, that it is essential for us to have correct knowledge of the religion itself, we can then say that there are two fundamental principles which underlie all of the various uh, pillars or practices of Islam. That of Elm and Aman. Elm being knowledge, and that, by that we mean the correct knowledge, and Aman being righteous deeds, that is, acting on that knowledge. And of course, I'm sure you are all familiar with the many verses in the Quran wherein Allah defines the righteous, those who will succeed in this life and attain paradise as those who believe in Allah and do righteous deeds. Now, in closing, I would just like to say also that this is related to the purpose of our creation, which is ibadah. As Allah has said very clearly, وَمَا خَلَقْتَ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَى إِلَّا لِعَبُدُونَ That uh, he has not created the jinn or mankind except for his worship, ibadah. And that ibadah can only be fulfilled if we have the correct ilm, the correct knowledge. Otherwise, we end up doing practices, believing that in fact we are worshipping Allah, when in fact we are not. And at the same time, the correct knowledge should also motivate us to act on that knowledge, producing righteous deeds, which then becomes ibadah, or the worship of Allah. So, in closing, you're all well aware that Islam teaches us that the whole of a Muslim's life can be ibadah, or actually should be ibadah. He should strive to make all of the various actions of his life acts of worship, acts which are pleasing to Allah. So for him to attain that, he must fulfill the two conditions which I spoke about. One, that there should be correct knowledge of Allah there. He should be remembering Allah. This is the aspect which is also known as Zikrullah. And Zikrullah doesn't just mean, you know, sitting after Salah and saying, Subhanallah, Subhanallah, Subhanallah. I mean, this is an aspect of the remembrance of Allah. But it is not the remembrance of Allah. The remembrance encompasses all of our lives. And when a person restricts it just to this act after Salah, Subhanallah, 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 then what he does is he turns this powerful principle of faith, he turns this powerful principle of faith into a blind ritual. So after Salah, you will hear him saying, People who come into Islam in the day after, what is he doing? What is he doing? Well, you see, we explain, well, you know, actually he's saying, Subhanallah, you know, Walhamdulillah, 
But for him what has happened is that the meaning you know, of saying subhanallah and reflecting on what it means, this is gone now. It is just a, you know, a physical exercise. So it's just a And he's finished and he gets up and he goes. And he believes he has actually remembered Allah. But is this remembrance of Allah? Of course not. This is just a blind ritual which will end up cursing him on the day of judgment. He's thinking he's doing something good for himself and in fact he's doing something to harm himself. And the other principle that he must follow in turning the various acts of his life into ibadah, worship of Allah, is that it has to be according to the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. He has to remember Allah and he has to do it according to the sunnah. When he fulfills these two principles, he has established the kind of knowledge that he should and that knowledge now becomes a living part of his life, turning his life, his daily life, into ibadah and inshallah, which would be acceptable to Allah and earn him paradise. We pray and ask Allah to give us the reality of knowledge, of the religion, of its practices, of consciousness of Allah and of putting that knowledge into practice in our daily life. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Let me just say that I will also uh, give you an opportunity if you have any general questions that you'd like to ask, anything concerning the uh, presentation or you know other things concerning Islamic uh, uh, principles or something like this. If you'd like to ask, um, I'll also, you know, we can give some few minutes, 20 minutes or so to that, inshallah. So, you know, uh, you said that there are problems with uh, following the Mother House. Can you just explain to us briefly how you feel about what you think is uh, specific for you people coming to the Mother House? Or, when you're not sure whether you should become a new shop or whatever they should follow, can you just explain to us why you're basically doing for people to do? Well, I think it is important for us to understand just fundamentally that um, the madhabs, each and every one of them represents an attempt by Muslims to implement the Quran and the Sunnah in their lives. They are the result of human efforts and as, a such, and as such they will contain in them some errors. They are the product of human reasoning and human reasoning is not perfect so therefore there will be some errors in them. And all of the scholars of the madhab, the major scholars, they have made that very clear to their followers stating in one way or another that we are human beings. The things that we have reasoned out are subject to error. Some of it will be correct, some of it will be wrong. So you should compare it to the Quran and to the Sunnah. And if you find anything contradicting it, throw it aside and follow the Quran and Sunnah. In one way or another, the scholars have all stated it. So this means that there is no special place for any one madhab over another. They are all individual human efforts which have become collective over time. 
So there is nothing wrong with a person following a madhab as long as he keeps in mind that it is not something infallible. We don't have any popes. You know, in Christianity you have a pope and when he becomes the pope, he becomes infallible according to their belief. So his madhab is something which is divinely ordained which the people must follow because it contains no error. We don't have anything like that. The only person we have who was infallible in that sense, in the sense of what he taught us we can be sure we should follow is Muhammad He we are obliged to follow. And that's what we mean when we say anna Muhammad Rasulullah. That's what we mean when we're saying that. That he is the, the only person who has received revelation from Allah Therefore, whatever he has taught us, we are obliged to try to follow as much as we can. We, are, we don't even have to question it. In the sense of, uh, what was the meaning behind it? No, we don't have to question it. If it is clear what he has told us to do, we can do it. We just, we should do it. Allah has told us, do it. Perhaps in time we may understand. Perhaps we may not. There's some things he may have told us to do that the, the deep meanings or the reasons behind it we may never know until we reach paradise if we make it there, inshaAllah. But we are obliged now to follow. And he is the only one that we follow blindly in that sense. Everybody else, we said, were human beings who made errors and were correct. We follow them when they're correct and we do not follow them when they were in error. This is why when Imam Malik was asked by one of his students, if we follow a companion of the Prophet, a Sahabi, will we be on the correct path? In other words, if somebody chooses a Sahabi and decides to follow whatever he said and did, would he be on the correct path? Imam Malik said, no, unless he was correct. Because the truth is one. Unless he was correct. In other words, the Sahabi was a human being. Everything he did is not right. There will be some error. So we, are, we can follow what he did which was correct and be sure we are on the right path. But now if we follow what he did which wasn't correct, well, we are on the wrong path. Now Allah will judge him for the error that he made and may forgive him for the error that he made. But we now who choose to follow an error knowing that it is an error, this is terrible. This is wrong. This is misguidance. So, accordingly, we should follow the madhabs with an open mind. So if we are following the madhab, the teachings that are, you know, because when you come to study as a, as a Muslim in most parts of the Muslim world, a Muslim person accepts Islam in Pakistan, then he is going to end up following the Hanafi Madhab. Whether he admits it or whether he doesn't, the greatest likelihood that he will be following. Unless he happened to have accepted Islam and somebody from another group called Ahl al-Hadith took him in and taught him. If that didn't happen, it means that he will be following the Hanafi Madhab. Now, as I said, what is required of him is not to say, well, no, I don't want to follow any madhabs and so He doesn't have to say it. If he decides he would prefer to follow, for example, you know, uh, scholars who he would sit under and learn from them and he's not particularly about, particular about any particular madhab, he can do this also. But if he decides to follow the madhab as he's taught, no harm. 
as long as he remains open-minded that when he may be doing something, if somebody comes to him with knowledge, showing him, listen, actually there is a hadith which is authentic in Sahih Bukhari, Sahih Muslim, which says that the Prophet did this and not that. Then when he finds himself in a situation like that, then he should try to follow that which he is certain about. He may try to get further understanding asking, you know, other scholars, well, you know, what about this hadith, you know, why aren't we following this hadith or whatever, so and so, try and get some clarity, but he now becomes obliged to follow the sunnah when it becomes clear to him that this was in fact the authentic practice of the Prophet Muhammad So what I'm saying is that for both the new converts as well as any Muslim, he is not obliged to follow a particular matter. But if he follows one, because that's where he is in, there is nothing wrong, as long as he remains open-minded. The ability to follow the teachings of the religion without actually following a particular madhab most of the way is something which is beyond most common people. A person who is a student, a scholar, or what they call talabul al so and so, he may be in a position now to to sit and take from the various schools of thought according to what is correct and what is incorrect. For the average person, he doesn't have the kind of background which would allow him to be able to do that. So therefore he needs, he will be obliged then to follow somebody who he trusts, whether it's the Imam of the Masjid or the scholar in his area or whatever. But he should also be of an inquiring mind. He should not just accept any pronouncement, you know, the, the person says, do this, don't do this, do this. You should be prepared to ask, well, why should we do this? Why shouldn't we do that? And if you find, for example, when you ask the person, why, he says, don't question me. Are you questioning my knowledge? Then this is a person who you need to get away from. Right? It's a person who is using knowledge in the wrong way. Because one should not be shy. To, to explain to others, and one should not feel that he is, you know, in any way uh, put down by being questioned as to where this knowledge comes from. No. Our duty is to convey the knowledge to people. So there is no reason why a scholar or a knowledgeable person should not inform the people as to where this comes from. We should do this because Prophet Muhammad said so, because Allah said so, this is why. So, I hope that sort of covers the idea of madhab, you know, sufficiently. Another correct follow-up there. See, the problem with that is, like, especially when you move away from, like, you say, you know, you're in Pakistan, you're going to follow Harbi Muslim. But now you're living in the States. And, you know, in the mosque, there are seven different, followers of seven different madhabs coming. And Imam is one particular kind. And there's all kinds of confusion, especially the kids, you know, like my kids. I have to teach them something else. And they come from the school or the mosque and they say, there, you know, this guy is saying this. But so my question is, that if I started following one Muslim, unfortunately, you know, this is a problem today. All the Muslim words, we have not been taught Islam. You know, I thought for 30 years I had been taught Arabic religion. Totally wrong. I should have been taught Islam. But when I came here, it would be like all other things. But the impression was given to me, all of that is wrong. It is totally untrue. So the confusion now is that should I keep following one religion 
So you have water comes in the liquid form, in steam, and it comes in ice. Right? This is like a tree god. <laughs> and then we'll go back to the creative things because this is how you find creation in this way. That's, that's what we call water, H2O, you know, in a chemical sense. This can exist in three different forms. Yet it is still H2O. Do you understand? This is their rationale. In other words, they are making God like his creation. This is why we reject it. For the Hindus, they believe that God becomes manifest in his creation at different periods of time. And this is why when you talk to the Hindu who is worshipping an idol, you, you know, if he is knowledgeable, you ask him, why are you worshipping this piece of stone? He will tell you, listen, I'm not worshipping the stone that you see here. I'm worshipping Brahma, God who is manifest in the stone. This again contradicts our concept of Tawheed. Because for us, God does not become his creation. God is God. He is the creator. And he is distinct, different from his creation. So once you, you believe in a God, though you believe it's one God, but he becomes creation, then you have destroyed the correct understanding of Tawheed. You're in shape. You see, why I say that is because you have people, Muslims for example, who will pray to saints. You know, a problem happens to them, a calamity strikes them, and the first thing they call out is, Ya Abdul Qadir al or Ya Rashidin, you know, they will call this out. You know, they're calling on Abdul Qadir, who's the most common one, in a sense, they'll call saints, you know, for succor to be saved. You see, what does this mean? This is shirk. They have given, what does they say now, see, Allah's attributes are no longer unique. They have taken attributes which belong only to Allah and they have given it to one of his creation. Because only Allah can save you. He is the only one who answers prayers. So once we give prayers to other than Allah, then we have committed shirk. And I try to give it, you know, from this kind of bottom line understanding so that we can apply it in any circumstance. If we are clear on this thing of the uniqueness of Allah, then it's very easy to see how these other ideas and, and principles are deviant. Whether they are other religions, because this is what they all share. All of the deviant paths, they all share this one principle, that they have given creation the qualities of Allah, or they have given Allah the qualities of creation. Either one or the other. In other words, Allah for them is not unique. This is how we can distinguish between the two. Because you'll find sometimes some people tell you, you know, uh, non-Muslim, you know, there's so many different religions. Everybody's saying he has the right path. His is the only way to God. How do we know which one is correct? They're all, all these people who have the religions, they're doing good deeds. We see righteous people amongst them. So obviously, either they're all correct, they're all different paths to God, or there really is no path. So you can make it simple for them by showing them what is the distinction between Islam and all the others. Because all the others share common principles. Islam 
is the only one with this principle of the uniqueness of God. That he does not share the qualities of his creation, nor does the creation share his qualities. That's the only one. So even though other religions may claim to be monotheistic, calling, you know, following the principle of one God, they are all involved in shirk according to the monotheistic principle of Islam, which is the true monotheism, what we call Tawheed. of life. So Muslims are enjoined to know first and foremost who is Allah. That it should be very clear in it. They need to know who is Allah because otherwise if they don't know who is Allah then they're going to be worshipping Allah's creation believing that they're worshipping Allah. Because this is what happened to the Christians. When you ask the Christian, why are you worshipping Jesus? He was a man. He said, no, I'm not worshipping Jesus, the man. I'm worshipping God who became a man. So he believes that he is worshipping God. But in fact, he's worshipping a man. So Muslims have to get past that. They have to be clear on who is Allah so that they can worship Allah alone. And they have to have knowledge of the basic principles of the religion and to apply those principles individually first and foremost because there's no point jumping to a governmental level and talking about you know changing society when you in your personal life you're not even praying in the masjid fajr you know you're sleeping in your bed fajr goes you get about the sunrise and pray fajr but you're talking about changing society and what society can you change and you can't even make enough change to pray fajr in the masjid right this is the basic this is the bottom line the people like to jump to these high levels because it's because you end up talking in theory you really can't do anything. And so you excuse yourself from having to deal with the, the things that you can deal with. Whereas Islam teaches that we have to start with ourselves. We have to establish the basics. Number one is Salatul Fajr in Masjid. This is number one. You have to start there. Prophet said that, you know, the, the Fajr is one of the most difficult prayers on the who? Munafiqeen. This is telling us something. If we are having trouble getting to Fajr, it is telling us that there is Nisak. There is Nisak. There is hypocrisy in us. If we are not making it to Fajr in the masjid. So we have to start there. If we can't do that, then don't talk about anything else. It's just delusion. Confusion. Let us start here. Then from there, deal with your family. Then your immediate community. Your job situation. And with people striving like that in this gradual sense, eventually, inshallah, we can deal with the society and bring it right. But if we jump to dealing with the society and we haven't dealt with number one, 
then we are only fooling ourselves. Okay? My question actually refers to one really, I would rather say in my mind it is complicated most of the time. Who will go to hell and who will go to heaven? To me, I understand that in this world nobody has the right to say who will go to hell and who will go to heaven. It is only Allah and Allah knows who will go to hell and who will go to heaven. Many a time we can see that many of our friends actually are discussing this great fact that if somebody who is a non-believer, he has to go to hell and go Of course, if I remember correctly, the Quran says the same thing, that non-believers are not going, they are going to hell. At the same time, it does say that those people who are doing good things, they are going to be rewarded for their good things, for their righteousness. Now the question that I ask you is that this, if it's for us to conclude that all non-believers will be going to hell, whatever may happen, whatever good any, any one of them might be doing, is that, is that correct to conclude that? Well, it depends on what you mean by a non-believer. If you mean what Allah means, a non-believer, one who truly does not believe in Allah, as he is supposed to believe, because we can't say the Hindu who believes in, in, in Brahma is believing in Allah and so he is going to know. We're talking about believing in Allah as he is supposed to believe in Allah. We can say with assurance that those who do not believe in Allah as Allah has ordained for them to believe in him are going to hell. Without a doubt. Because Allah said so. Without a doubt. The problem comes when we start pointing the finger at individuals. We say, all American Christians are going to hell. No, you see, you run into a problem now. Because when you're going to sit down with each American Christian, you will find that they have a variety of different beliefs. You will find among them those who don't believe that Jesus is God. And only praying to God alone. But he doesn't know what Islam is. He doesn't, the picture he's heard of Islam is so distorted, he wouldn't want to have anything to do with it. So he is actually following it as far as, far as the principle of Tawheed. is following it, but on the outside he's wearing the garb of a Christian. So this is where you run into a problem when you're going to make a blanket statement, all Russians, because they're communists, are going to hell. You run into a problem. It's just like saying all Muslims are going to paradise. Same kind of problem. So, we can talk in a theoretical sense that if a person does not believe in Allah as he is supposed to believe in Him, then he is going to hell. Those people who believe in Allah as he is supposed to be believed in, but may commit certain sins, they may also go to hell for a period of time, but as the Prophet informed us, Allah will remove them from hell after a period. As long as they have a mustard seed weight of that true belief in Allah in their heart. But this is something we are not in a position to bear. So it's very, it becomes a problem when you start to make these blanket statements according, you know, to 
people. And I mean, in the case of Dawah, when you're giving Dawah, of course it's useless. You know, you want to give Dawah to an American family, you're going to hell. You know, what's the point, really? You know, it's, it's totally useless. There's no benefit. You've turned him off. It's just like even coming to a Muslim, you know, who is uh, praying to the saints, and you tell him, you're going to hell. No, again, he's chosen his ears. This is not Dawah. You don't make Dawah in this fashion. You just turn off people. It's very important for you to develop you know, relationships with people where people you know, feel good about you, they feel positive, you're not approaching them in a harsh, negative kind of way, you know, but you're trying to develop a relationship and they feel from you sincerity because you should be sincere in what you're trying to do. It is not a question of just putting down people, but you're trying to get the message of Islam across to them. And as such, you have to approach it in a way which is befitting of the message of Islam. Okay? Okay? Go ahead, Daniel. One thing I want to ask you, you know, say, you know, this is just a small doubt, but, you know, like a common person, you know, like I'm a real Muslim, you know, like the man has gone to a high level, but, you know, the Islam of the mosque, can I come and ask you to pray for, you know, that somebody say that something is happening, can I ask you to pray for Allah? Because, you know, he is much more knowledgeable, and we are seeing that the level of Iman of a wise person is constantly in trying to deal with and uh, so, can I ask them to pray for the Sahaja or any other thing? Well, if you ask a person who is living, it is acceptable. You know, if you ask this person to pray for me, it is acceptable. But if you pray to this person to pray for you, it is not acceptable. But he's living, he can do something. Once he's dead, this is where the problem comes. Because now you are praying to him. So if he's living, you can ask. And Iman is something which is constantly increasing and decreasing. Don't think that such and such a person is a pious person in the sense that, you know, he is his Iman is always increasing in the sense that he never... No, no. Everybody goes through periods of ups and downs. Human beings, that is their nature. Nobody is perfect, only our eyes is perfect. Has it happened to have a glimpse of the book of Pablis? And I have a glimpse of the I hope one day I can read the book of it. It's an But today, knowing the topic, Pablis, we are going to talk. I thought maybe it would be much longer than what you really thought. Well, um, you know, the topic of Tawheed is something which will take a very long period of time. And I don't want you to think that, I mean, the little nutshell that I gave you Tawheed represents the totality of Tawheed. No. I just, uh, the book which I wrote on Tawheed is 220 something pages, right? So it means that there is a lot to it. And, you know, but the point is that uh, I wanted to just try to give you the essence, but when you come now to apply it in various aspects of the religion, this is when you know, it becomes in more depth. But this is something uh, that in fact, you know, it's been, it's very unfortunate that in a lot of the works that, that have been written about Islam, when you pick it up and, you know, it may be about the pillars of Islam, you will find that they will deal in, with Tawheed in about one paragraph. And then the rest of the book is devoted to the other pillars of Islam. 
I mean, I think really Tawheed is just, you know, Allah is one person. You know, but in fact, it is the most important pillar. And it's the one which most, you know, should be developed and explained. Because if this is not clear, then all the other pillars become useless. If you are involved in shirk in terms of your, your, your worship of Allah, then your salah, your zakah, your, your song, your hajj, all of it is useless. So it is really one which needed to be emphasized. And alhamdulillah, you know, uh, in recent times, uh, the so-called Wahhabi movement, you know, has been responsible for the revival of concern about Tawheed. And again, this movement has sort of been misunderstood in people thinking, you know, Wahhabis are like innovators in religion, right? The term when a person wants to refer to an apostate or a deviant, you will call him a Wahhabi. You know, this is a, it's very unfortunate. But this is, this is life also, that when a person, you see, where, as a, where a wrong practice becomes common, the right practice will appear to be deviant. You know, but this is really the essence of the so-called Wahhabi movement. It was to revive the fundamental teachings of Tawheed and sticking to the Quran and to the Sunnah. You know, people think of the Wahhabi movement as being against Madhab and so on. So no, the scholars from that Kemalala movement were from the Hanbali Madhab. You know, that's why the Hanbali Madhab is the Madhab of Saudi Arabia. But they did not, generally speaking, the major scholars did not approach it in a rigid sense. That they did teach people to be open-minded. This is why when they came into Mecca, when they came into what Mecca, when they took over Mecca, at the time that they took over Mecca, you used to have four different prayer places around the Kaaba. Four different prayer places, one for an imam from each of the four madhabs. So that when the Adhan came for Maghrib, for example, the imam from the Hanafi madhab would get up, they would make iqamah, and all the Hanafis who were making tawaf and that would come and pray behind him. When he was finished, then the imam from the Shafi'i madhab would get up. This is the state that things were in. When they came into Mecca, they said, no, finish with this. We destroy these relics and make just one place for prayer, and the imam will follow whatever madhab is following, everybody has to follow and finish. But when they went and tore down these relics, you know, these different mihrabs which were around the Kaaba, the Muslim world screamed out, look at these Wahhabi madmen, they're destroying the Kaaba. They, they, were, they didn't understand what was going on. Because they were so used to the idea of these different things being around the Kaaba that what these people did now appeared to be weird and strange and, you know, deviant. When they went into Medina and to Mecca and the graveyards and they leveled all the graves. Because if you look at pictures that were made at the graveyards of Medina and Mecca before the so-called Wahhabis came in there, the place looked like a city. You had houses with big domes, you know, in there, which were built, which were, you know, shrines built over the various graves. So it looked like a city. You can still see similar cities like this if you go to Cairo, for example, Egypt. If you go to the to, to Cairo, and I don't mean this to be against the Egyptians if there are any Egyptian brothers here, but uh, <laughs> I mean this is something that I observed myself, you know, you know, going to Cairo and, uh, you know, I, I had heard about this, so I asked the brothers to take me to the graveyard and I said, I see this. And sure enough, there they were. I mean, houses with streets going down the middle and poor people had actually broken into them and started living in there, cooking and everything, and the government brought electricity in for them. <laughs> and I saw some which were two stories, you know. <laughs> but this is the state, you know, which existed not just there but around the Muslim world. 
So when they came in, we know there is authentic tradition in, 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 in Sahih Muslim where uh, Prophet commanded Ali to go and deface any statue he found, he should, you know, destroy it, deface it, and to level all graves with the ground. This is, this is what Ali went out to do with, on the commandment of Rasulullah So now when the so-called Wahhabi movement came in and they did what Ali went out to do, the Muslim world, because they were so used to these, you know, tombs and houses over graves, they said, look, these people are destroying the graveyards. But it's just, uh, unfortunately, because of the ignorance of the Muslims, it, it this led them, these acts, though they were righteous acts in themselves, it led them to believe that the so-called Wahhabi movement was deviant, distorted, you know. And even till this day, of course, it is something remaining amongst the Muslim Ummah, this idea. And I even hear on, you know, CNL, you know, be talking about, um, for example, Kuwaiti, uh, not Kuwait, but uh, I think it was Abu Dhabi, and then they talked about the, that they followed the Wahhabi brand of Islam. <laughs> I think it is another <laughs> Islam-like. But it is something that... Uh, the Muslim world really needs to become clearer to really understand really what in fact were the principles and to realize that in fact what they were standing for was in Islam in itself. They didn't bring anything new. It was the old Islam. The only Islam. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to say it was the Mujahid, right? You know, uh, you know Prophet had made a statement that, you know, at the beginning or the end of every century there would arise a Mujaddid, one revival of the religion, right? Now, whether he was the Mujaddid or he wasn't the Mujaddid, uh, you know, whether it was somebody else, you know, I wouldn't want to get into that. That is, Allah ultimately knows this. But to say he was a reformer, you know, there is no doubt. He was calling the people, it was a reformation movement, calling them back to the correct Islam. A person who reads Quran, he doesn't understand the meaning of it. How would you think that better understanding? Well, I would believe that one who reads the Quran and understands what Allah is saying and acts on it, he benefits, he gets the full benefit of reading the Qur'an. One who reads the Qur'an, understands it, and doesn't act on it, is cursed. And this is a situation that you find, say for example, in the Arab Muslim world, where they may know what the Qur'an is saying, but they are reading it and not acting on it. In the case where you have people reading the Qur'an, not understanding what the Qur'an is saying, and therefore, they're not acting on it. Then, again, they're in a very terrible situation. If they're reading the Qur'an, not understanding what it's saying, but are trying to act on whatever they know of Islam, then this is a, another category. We could say that those people, inshallah, are rewarded for their intention. Their intention of recitation of the word of God. But, the true understanding of reciting of the Qur'an is the reciting understanding and practice. 
It is not just merely the uttering of the Arabic sounds. So this is why I would advise brothers who don't know Arabic that they should strive to learn Arabic to be able to understand it. Not just to the point where they can read the Quran and then they stop because this is what has happened. It is a system which has been perpetuated in the non-Arab Muslim world that people are taught Arabic enough to to parrot the letters and then they stop, finish. He's learned enough now. But this is wrong. It's a mistake and the ulama of this, this region are at fault also because they have allowed it to go on. They don't speak against it. You know, and in fact, you know, it is sort of in a sense in the vested interest of the ulama of some of these regions because when people are dependent on them to understand what it is in the Quran, see then everybody has to come to them and this becomes a means of livelihood for them. So if more people are able to go and read the Quran themselves and find out for themselves, then they don't have to come, then it means that their livelihood is going to be cut off. So these people tend to encourage people to just read and not understand. You know, leave it to us to understand. We will tell you. You see? So they carry some of the weight, the burden, the sin. But there should be an effort, you know, for those who are aware, there should be an effort, if you don't know Arabic, to strive to learn Arabic, to understand it, not just to parrot it, but to understand the Arabic, so you can read Allah's words and understand them as they were revealed. But until you reach that stage, I would say it is obligatory on you to read the Qur'an also in translation. You continue to read the Arabic to develop the skill, the knowledge of the Arabic, but you read the Qur'an in translation to understand what Allah is saying. Because this is the purpose of reading the Qur'an, very ultimately, is to understand what Allah is saying so that we can act on it. Trouble. Okay, these, you know, so-called tariqas. Now, you have to go to look to see what is it they're teaching. If the fundamental ideas about Allah and man's relationship to Allah are incorrect, then we have to leave them, put them aside. If the fundamental ideas are okay, they are correct, then we look to see the practice. If the practice involves things which are not according to the teachings of the Prophet then again we have to put them aside. Because we should only be involved in uh, movements or groups or uh, you know any kind of communal activity if it is according to the correct teachings of Islam from the Quran and from the Sunnah. And I think, from what I know of the tariqahs in Sudan and in general, in the Muslim world as they are practiced today, you know, and they come under various names like Naqshabandi and, you know, Chisti and Shadili and all these different things. When you go and you look at what they are teaching the people, you will find 
fundamentally this idea, this mystic idea of union with Allah, this idea of the human soul being divine, and that man strives through dhikr and, and you know, other means of, of, uh, of uh, remembrance and, and degradation of the physical body to try to liberate his spirit so his spirit unites with God, the divine spirit, which they call sana. This is a common principle throughout these so-called tariqas. I'm not saying that it's in every single one, but the majority of them hold this belief. And anyone who holds this belief is deviant. You have to leave them aside. Now the others, all of them also I feel, in general, share different methods of what they call zikr. You have, for example, in, in uh, Turkey you have the whirling dervishes, you know, who they even perform in, um, in, uh, in New York, in, the, in uh, what they call a place, Madison Square Garden, some place like this. They get up on stage and they stand up, they wear these big long caps, they call charbush, right? long ones, and they have a kind of a skirt like, and then they spin in circles, and they put one hand up and one hand down like this, and when they spin, the skirt comes up like the way a ballerina's skirt comes up, and, and they spin around in circles, and there's one playing some music, and you know, and this they say is zikr. And they say this is what Prophet Sallallahu did. This is deviation. This is just one extreme. And when I'm sure when you go into Sudan, if you go from the tariqah to the tariqah, you'll find that they're telling you, you know, that you either you swing in your head like this or you're jumping up and down or it's something. Dancing and there's music. These all represent deviations. And so it is essential for a person to go back, any practice you find. Was this done by Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu You don't have evidence for it? You know? And oftentimes what they will tell you is, you know, the Shaykh got this in a dream. You know? When they can't find a hadith to support this practice, and they won't find it, you know, they'll tell you, well, you know, the Shaykh of the Shaykh, he had a dream. And he was taught this. This is deviation. Because our religion is not based on the dreams of shiuch. It is based on revelation which came in the Qur'an and through the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad Anything outside of that, we leave aside. So I would say, in general, a Muslim would be safer if he avoided the so-called tariqah, in general.
traditionally called the alim or so and so, but everybody who has some knowledge, it is his duty to pass that knowledge on to others. But, you know, to me still, there is something lacking in terms of the practice of even what we know. I agree with you, we need that other knowledge to increase our consciousness or understanding, etc. But also, the will to practice what we know 
is broken. This is what, because we don't need an alam to tell us that we should be here in the masjid for fajr. This is between us and Allah. This is each and every one of our personal responsibility. Yet, we're not here. So, what we need fundamentally Besides, of course, I agree with you, the knowledge has to be there also. But what we need is for those people who come to try to encourage the other brothers to come. Eventually, with the filling of the masjid, this will put pressure, for example, on the, the imams of the masjid to, to do something. You now have a masjid full of people. Are you just going to make fajr and walk out? No. They're waiting for something. After fajr too. This is because, in a sense, the islands or the scholars are as active as the people make them. I, I believe that the, the scholars are responsible and they will be held before Allah for not doing their duty. But also, the leaders, the people of knowledge and so forth, they tend to be as active as the people make them. So if there are people coming to them, pulling on them and so on, so this motivates them to action. But if nobody comes, you know, this is human nature. <laughs> he goes about his, his business, you know. It's unfortunate. And as I said, the, the, the alim, of course, he carries a greater responsibility than the average person. But I would, you know, put that recommendation to the masses too. That they need to grab a hold of the, the people of knowledge and to make them fulfill their responsibilities. On a personal level in terms of educating the people as well as standing up within the society to make the change. Benefit of the family and friends Are there any kids or kids or the kids or some people can get to pass on to the instead? They don't have time to read the book and Do you have kids that can come and people that try to pass on? They are, but you know, unfortunately they are out in the act. You know, um, brothers who have been, uh, you know, attending their lectures and so on, so they have been recording it. So they are available, but in react. So, you know, they're not being marketed, you know, like, you know, on a market kind of basis. These are just brothers of state. If anybody would like some copies, they make copies for them. You know, you pay for the cost of the copying and they, they do it, you know, like this. The books are available in uh, Abu Qasim bookstore here in, uh, in Riyadh and Palestine Road. As well as I heard that in many of the other bookstores they're available now. But all of my books, with the exception of one recent uh, publication is available in, uh, all of them are available in Abu Qasim bookstore in Palestine. Inshallah, Allah increase our knowledge of the religion and our commitment to practicing whatever knowledge we have and that those of us who have knowledge realize the responsibility to carry that knowledge to others and also that those who don't know feel an obligation to go and ask those who know so that they may become more knowledgeable to apply the principles of the religion as they should be. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Subhanakallahu wa bihamdika wa shalom wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.